Hi, my name is Brooke Patterson and I'm a member of the BJSM editorial team. It is my pleasure today to introduce you to Dr. Dan Bonanno. Dan is a podiatrist and a senior lecturer at La Trobe University. He completed a PhD in 2019, where he investigated the use of foot orthoses for the prevention of injury in military recruits. Today, we're going to talk about footwear choices for athletes, from Nike's Dragonfly to the role of research in footwear design. Welcome, Dan. Uh, Thanks, Brooke. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So, Dan, athletes may often ask their clinician, whether that be a podiatrist, physio, strength and conditioning, a sports physician, what shoes they should wear for their particular sport. So what factors do you consider when helping an athlete decide on appropriate footwear? Uh, great question, Brooke. Um, it, gets, it can be a really tricky situation, particularly with so much footwear choice being in the marketplace at the moment. So I like to try and keep it relatively simple and start with trying to identify the patient and clinician goals. And if it is a patient-clinician situation, quite often we're dealing with injury. And if that is the case, then I'm trying to find, personally as a clinician, trying to find footwear that can help reduce loading of that injured tissue, for example, and trying to explain that to the athlete to make sure that they're buying into that potential footwear shift. And, of course, over time, the patient and clinician goals can change and being mindful that although a priority with an injured athlete might be all about getting them back into training and eventually making their way back into sport, at some point the priority might shift to let's try and maximise and optimise performance and the conversation could totally shift from, okay, you've been in a particular pair of shoes that we prescribed or recommended based on an injury and now we're moving towards what can we change with your footwear to maximise performance and sometimes that comes at a risk of injury potentially or at least you're always playing those two elements off with each other, injury prevention or management versus performance. Getting back to the point, I think it's important to identify patient and clinician goals and being mindful that they can change over time. Something else, I guess, to consider once those goals have been addressed is trying to optimise fit and footwear comfort. And they sound like fairly simple goals to achieve, but they're not always, particularly if you're dealing with an athlete that has a sponsorship to a set brand, they're somewhat constrained to picking footwear from that particular brand. And comfort, although that's a fairly simple concept, uh, there's so many factors that go into comfort. So many would assume it's about cushioning, but fit plays a role, uh, temperature within the shoe, footwear, weight, uh, flexibility, rigidity of the shoe, all those things um, all interplay and can play a role when it comes to footwear comfort. Thanks, Dan. So you've mentioned the goals of the athlete, whether it be injury-related, performance-related, comfort, and you touch on sponsorship. How do you deal with that uh, issue clinically? Brand that the club is sponsored by. So in the instance where we're dealing with sponsorship, I always try and exhaust all avenues within their current footwear sponsor. And on occasions, that means seeking older models from within that brand. So, for example, I've recently dealt with an athlete that was sponsored by a particular brand. They really enjoyed their footwear from last season. 
the new model has come out and we just haven't been able to find the right fit for them and we've worked our way through that range. And although their sponsor is keen for them to wear current product, they're also mindful that the current product isn't working for them right now. So we've gone back into some older models and I guess we're somewhat hopeful at this point that the next range that comes out will be more suitable and fit and they can then wear a contemporary model. Now, I've been through that process previously and that's not the case. And then we have to have the conversation around are you open to switching brands, in which, in which case we then start to play around with different brands and find the right fit for them. And they can um, make the decision on whether they want to switch brands and possibly pick up a new sponsorship, in which case um, hopefully financially they're, they're no better off or worse. But um, ultimately it's about, again, having conversations with the athlete and working out what their goals are and ultimately their primary goal is about performing and um, having the right shoes on is obviously paramount to that. And so what do you think about Nike's recent ploy with their super spikes and allowing athletes to have their own endorsed brand on them? Yeah, so I I look at this, I guess, in two different ways. My first reaction is it's very clever marketing. I think there's nothing more powerful than having an athlete sponsored by a particular brand and then they turn up to the current Olympics and they will switch brands. And that is really powerful marketing. It's saying obviously that this shoe that Nike is providing is so superior to the shoe provided by my current sponsor that I'm willing to make the leap leap across. And the other part of me says it's fantastic that athletes have increased footwear choice. I mentioned earlier one of the constraints around having a athletes sponsored by a particular brand is they're limited to choices within that brand. Now Nike have allowed athletes outside of the Nike sponsorship stable to make the move across if that shoe is going to be more suitable for them. And in this case, at this Olympics, um, it's all about performance. They're making the switch largely because Nike are currently viewed as having the superior track shoe. And um, it'll be really fascinating to see throughout the Olympics how many athletes do make that move to wearing a plain, unbranded Nike shoe that they can then brand up themselves so uh, they can compete and, uh, I guess, not breach any sponsorship um, arrangements that they have with the current sponsor. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Looking forward to the athletics starting next week. Um, So do you think it's the shoe that's helping break all these records in the lead-up? That's a really interesting question and... At this stage, there's not a whole lot of science that's been published around these track spikes, but what we do know from the previous five years when looking at marathon shoes, the features of those shoes, which have been using uh, lighter foams that are more compliant and resilient, they're bouncing back to their original sort of shape and the use of carbon plates, that has improved performance in the longer distance runners, so the marathon runners. Now, some of that technology has come through into these track spikes where they're using thicker foams, which are lightweight, compressible and resilient, and also have these plates, these rigid plates, often carbon or made from PIBA or nylon, and they're increasing the rigidity of the track shoe. So the features are very similar to marathon shoe. Uh, There's just currently no science at the moment that's been published to show it does improve performance. But anecdotally, what we've seen over the last... 12 to 24 months is a lot of track records being broken in these 
types of track spikes. So we've seen records broken anywhere from 1,500 metres all the way up to 10,000 metres, indoor, outdoor, men and women, at um, you know, world record levels and also collegiate level, uh, level, high school level. So the fact that we're seeing records broken, we've seen these shoes turn up at the same time, and we're seeing athletes moving from their sponsor into these shoes um, would suggest that the athletes think there's a difference and the records are suggesting that they're, well, they're running faster. Um, is it the shoes or is it the combination of shoes and training and other elements? Uh, I'm sure we can't just put it down to the shoes, but um, I dare say they're playing a part. You know, with the swimming suits, how they got banned because of mm. performance advantages, do you think anything with shoes would ever, you know, happen in that space? So as long as access is equal to all athletes, and I think it's a problem, and I don't think it would be banned. But it is an interesting approach because there have been some athletes that have come out and they're concerned that their records have been broken because of footwear and not because of the athletes themselves. But you can go back in time and every athlete has had some historical advantages over people who preceded them, such as athletics tracks and how fast than they used to be. Um, look at road bikes. They're, they're stiffer and more rigid and more aerodynamic than ever, they ever have been and, and so forth. So sports will always advance and i guess that's why we constantly see records broken and um so to answer your question i don't i can't see it happening as long as everyone has access to these high performance shoes super interesting dan now i'm sure there's lots of people sitting home at the couch watching the olympics this week thinking they're going to go out and buy a new performance shoe what would be your advice for clinicians and athletes who are considering a footwear change yeah we've got some high performance shoes but what we don't really know is how they affect loading of tissues around the body. And more importantly, does that manifest in injury? So my advice to anyone who's making a shift in any footwear choice, whether it's going from a traditional running shoe to a performance shoe or a minimalist shoe or no shoes at all, is that you do it gradually and you provide the body opportunity to adapt to that change in shoes. So my advice would be, first of all, identify the goals of the athlete and then organise, and if you think it's worth making the switch, that there is a gradual transition to that new shoe to allow tissue adaption. I'm going to shift tack a little bit. So considering athletes that are injured and completing rehabilitation, so do you think um, athletes should wear their game um, footwear when completing rehab? So, for example, like a football player who's doing some straight line volume type running on grass, do you think they should be in their boots or in, in runners? Again, great question, Brooke. <laughs> they just keep coming. Um, I would say that the ultimate goal is before anyone returns back into play or back into high-intensity training is that they are wearing their game day boots just so that they can develop confidence in that boot um, and know that they can perform in that boot so they're ready for gameplay. But much earlier in the rehabilitation process, I'm really comfortable with someone just picking a shoe that's going to allow them to train most comfortably and minimise the risk of injury and allow them to recover so they can back up again and build some solid training load so that that can prepare them best for game day, which might be a fair way down the track. So, for example, if I had an athlete who I did, I can talk about a case that I dealt with recently. We had an athlete who had a ruptured plantar fascia and they're an Australian rules footballer, so they're playing in a football boot, but they found that using a uh, rigid plated running shoe allowed them to run sooner than, say, wearing their football boots. So their initial return to running is in a 
one of these high-performance running shoes wasn't because it was a high-performance shoe, but rather it had the carbon plate running through it that made it quite rigid. So we had them running in that, and then we effectively phased them towards their football boots. So they moved to a traditional running shoe, then into a grass cap, then into a really structured football boot, and then eventually we were going to try and get them into their high-performance, lightweight football boot, but they were relatively happy in that more structured football boot, and that's then what they played in. So in essence, we're sort of weaning them off the really supportive, cushioned, rigid shoe towards their football boot. But before they played football again, they were training and playing and doing offline work in their football boots. So they're they're ready to play, basically. That makes sense. And do you find... Um, many players train in a different boot to what they play in? I do find that with some footballers and I often have this conversation that they don't have to train in the boots that they play in because obviously come game day, they're looking for optimal performance and it might be that they're willing to sacrifice comfort and even possibly risk a greater risk of injury to perform at a higher level. But during the week, they're more than happy to wear an alternative boot. And I also believe that there's some benefit in mixing up your footwear choices so that you're loading your body differently under different situations. So I'm really open to players and athletes mixing up their shoes during the week and having shoes that they compete in and it might be different to what they perform in. But at the very least, they need to be confident in the boots that they would eventually play a game in. And I'd rather they're not experimenting for the first time in a game that they at least tried on the training track first. Some great practical advice there, Dan. Now, what about female athletes? What What is out there for them? Should they be choosing a female-specific shoe? Do they exist in what sports? Um, how are they different? And do you think they need to be different? They do exist, but there's definitely not enough female-specific footwear choices on the market. And historically female athletes have essentially worn a male shoe that's been shrunk down and had some cosmetic changes made to it. So what we have seen, thankfully, over the last few years is we're starting to see some women-specific footwear hit the market, which is fantastic, but more work needs to be done because I guess if you're looking for a female-specific shoe, uh, you're essentially limited to maybe two football boot choices as opposed to a male player who may have over 20 options. So the choice is there, but it's increasing, but it's still quite limited. So yes, I guess there are female-specific shoes. Whether females need to wear them or not really depends on the geometry of their feet. Um, What I've found interesting, a project that we're doing at the moment, which I'm involved in, is looking at uh, basketball footwear, actually, and we're looking at female and male players. And interestingly, there's some females in our group who say that no basketball shoe fits them really well and they're shifting and sliding around because their feet are too narrow. And there's some female female players that we've interviewed and they don't have that issue at all. They, they fit really well in a male shoe. So ultimately, I think what we need is just more shoes on the market that account for different foot shapes and, and sizes. And interestingly, I was looking at some data recently from a foot scanning project, which was conducted throughout Asia, North America and Europe. And essentially there was a shoe store that was scanning all their patients' feet. So they had over a million scans and they looked at differences between men and women. And it seems that 
when feet are, sh- are smaller in length or shorter in length, I should say, that women typically have narrower heels and narrower forefoot um, and so forth. But once we get to a certain size, men and women's feet were quite similar. And then when we look at larger feet, they're different again. So it seems that feet between men and women are different, but it really depends on the length of the foot. And therefore, depending on the length of your foot, there may well need to be a greater range of lasts and and foot shape options, footwear options. Regarding some brands that do have some female-specific footwear, so, for example, Puma this year introduced a women's last for their running shoe, and overall the volume within the shoe is decreased and they've created a narrower heel and a lower instep. Now, that's across their whole size range. And I just mentioned earlier we've got some of this scan data from these shoe stores that found that, yeah, females do have a reduced volume, narrow heel fit and lower instep, but that's normally in smaller feet, not necessarily larger feet. Um, And that might be an issue with creating a male last and a female last that isn't necessarily size specific. Um, Ida Sports is another one who's entered the football market uh, the last few years and their football boot has a wider toe box for for female players, has a narrow heel and a high instep. So interestingly, there's some differences between the Puma female running shoe and what Ida are doing with their female football boots. And I guess it also begs the question, are feet different in different sports? I, I know in my time working with world football, also known as soccer in some parts of the world, that we see more digital deformities. We see more hallux valgus. We see more hammer toes because people traditionally wear their boots tighter and therefore people who are playing world football or soccer may require more forefoot width compared to players that I've worked with in Australian rules football that traditionally have a better fitted shoe, which allows more room around the toes and they tend to have less digital deformities. So interestingly, there are some female shoes on the market. They've tried to tailor the shape of their upper and they've actually two different companies have gone in two different directions with regards to overall width in the forefoot. And then we have, I guess, ASICs have a female football boot that essentially has used the same outsole as the men's, but they've made modifications to the upper. So they've reduced volume, they've changed the upper so it fits more snugly around the heel and around the instep of the foot. So... There are some, there is some progress in this area, and the footwear companies are coming on board. But, um, looking forward to seeing where it goes in the near future. Dan, you mentioned comfort is really important. Um, how might clinicians measure comfort, um, and also how do you me- measure it in a research study as well? Yeah, okay. So I'll start with clinically. It simply is asking the question: Are the shoes comfortable? And if the athlete says they're not then I'd start drilling down on, okay, so what do you find uncomfortable about the shoes? Now, it might be that they're too heavy and that wasn't what you were expecting them to say. So, okay, can we look at lighter weight options potentially? But typically it's often around poor fit of a shoe. It might be blistering. It could be as simple as a seam that's really prominent on the inside of the shoe. And once you've identified what's making a particular shoe not comfortable, then I guess you're looking for solutions to that, whether it's making a modification to the shoe or possibly switching to a different model or simply just replacing the shoe. It might be the shoe's worn out and become misshapen in, in some sort of way or, or some sort of um, some excessive wear has taken place. Is it pretty obvious from when they first put the shoe on or do they need to go away and, and wear it um, or get it you know, tested in a functional way before you can get an idea of comfort? 
So it's really important to, I guess, ask that question initially. Uh, are shoes comfortable? But importantly, you don't really know how comfortable a shoe is until you want it a few times. And quite often you won't find there is a problem until you've actually taken it out into, in, in, if you're using football as an example, into a game situation and putting it through its paces at absolute maximum intensity. So, yeah, we can ask those questions initially and you'd like to think that if you're going to try the products or the shoes in this case, that there is initial comfort and that is well worth asking questions down the track because, you know, you can a shoe can feel good out of a box, but it might be after a game of football, after a long bike ride where you might get numbness in your feet or you might have laces irritating the dorsal aspect of your foot or other problems can arise. So definitely important to ask about initial comfort, but the, I guess the real test is after they've been tried in several training sessions and after some games. In a research setting, what we would do, it's a relatively simple question. It's asking people to rate comfort. We often will just have a like a visual analogue scale or they might even have a bit of paper where they can mark comfort scale from 0 to 10. Um, that scale often doesn't have any numbers. It's just simply a line, most comfortable at one end and uncomfortable at the other and they'll mark how comfortable a shoe is. So it is something that we do include in our research. Uh, there has been some theories previously uh, proposed by Ben O'Nick, the comfort uh, paradigm, where if something is comfortable, it traditionally allows you to move more efficiently, is the theory, and that will be your preferred pathway of movement. So with that in mind, measuring comfort has become almost standard protocol in footwear research and also in orthotic research in, in more recent years as well. I get asked a lot um, from women who have suffered ACL injuries what uh, football boot they should wear to reduce their risk of knee injury. What would you say to those athletes? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Brooke, and I, I have a similar question asked of me of ACL injuries and also syndesmosis injuries, which are becoming more common in Australian North football. What sort of conversations I'm now having athletes is trying to identify boots that may have less or less traction with the surface that they're playing on. So traditionally when players are coming back from an ACL rupture or a syndesmosis injury, what we're attempting to do now is return to sport initially in a stop or a stud that is shorter in length and rounder in shape. And we find that they tend to release more easily during rotation. And I guess at some point, as the athlete starts to become more confident in their body and as time passes and performance may become a priority, then you may start to look at lengthening those stops. But ultimately, the players are happy if not slipping over and they're performing. And I think it's really trying to find that fine balance between a boot that's going to allow enough traction that they can perform and get selected and play without potentially finding a boot that offers so much traction that it might get caught. And it is a fear of a lot of athletes who have had an ACL injury that their foot might get caught because so many report that experience when they've injured themselves. Now, whether that did contribute to the injury or not, that is something that I hear a lot of anecdotally. And personally, I broke my ACL as well, and that's how I did mine playing basketball. My foot got trapped, essentially, and I kept going. So um, that is something that, 
we're exploring. And interestingly, I found in the last few years that athletes are initiating that conversation with me around what studs should they be picking um, to minimise the risk of a re-injury of their ACL, whereas that conversation wasn't happening previously. So I feel like athletes are becoming much more educated on these topics and therefore clinicians need to keep up and stay ahead as well. So, yeah, interesting question, Brooke, and it's something that's becoming a question that's asked of me a whole lot more often as years go by. Dan, can you give the clinician three key takeaways when considering footwear choice for athletes? Well, I think although we've talked about footwear today, I think it's important to recognise that injuries are multifactorial and historically I think footwear has received way too much credit when things are working well and they also get too much credit when things are not working or fail. So as athletes and as clinicians, I think we need to step back and say, okay, what role are these shoes really playing in this particular case? We all know that you could have the ideal shoe, but if you make some serious training errors, you're still going to get injured. So factoring in everything that might lead to injury. So that's the first one. Um, Also being mindful that over the last 10 years, the marketplace has just been flooded with footwear options that were never there previously. So we've seen minimal shoes, maxima shoes, high-performance shoes, um, changes in foams, use of carbon plates and so forth. Now, all of these different footwear choices will change the way that we move, will change tissue loading. So it's important to know that there are options out there. So if you have a client and you feel like you've exhausted all avenues in terms of getting them better and you haven't really experimented with footwear, there is lots of choice out there that's worth pursuing, much more than what we saw 10 years ago. And the final point, and a really important one, I feel, is that we can really learn a lot from our past experiences with shoes. So always asking the athlete what's worked well for them, what hasn't worked well for them, and using that information to guide what footwear you're going to head towards. And you can learn a lot from failed footwear choices and also successful footwear choices. So making sure that you're being respectful to history and trying to avoid making the same mistakes again. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast. You can find links to some of the papers Dan mentioned in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends. And remember, you can find a new podcast on the BJSM app every Friday. We hope you have a physically active day.